Before we read this somber passage, could we look at the last verse of the previous chapter, which reminds us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. From Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. In chapter 3. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will put them in trial that they, for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sell girls for drink. Now what have you against me, Tyre and Sidon, and all your regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, that you might send them far from their homeland. See, I am going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them, and I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will say your sons and daughters to the people of Judah, and they will send them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near to attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side, and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full. And the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will overflow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and I will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate. Edom, a desert waste, because of the violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. The Lord has spoken. Good morning. Well, I'm Scott. Uh, add my welcome to that of Andrews and Julian's and kiddos. Uh, let's pray and ask God to help us. Uh, this is a passage 
We're looking at the judgment of God, and I think uh, often we find it hard uh, to see that as a really good thing, and I'm praying that this morning we will. Heavenly Father, we pray uh, that you would open our eyes this morning uh, to see how good and holy and righteous you are, and to leave here this morning filled with hearts of praise for who you are and love for you. Amen. Well, it might be hard, uh, particularly for any Crows fans out there to imagine, uh, but imagine this year the Adelaide Crows and Port Power both made it through to the grand finals. Wouldn't that be something? Uh, You know, such a momentous occasion. They might even decide to uh, ditch the MCG and run it at Adelaide Oval. And, you know, (laughs) that would be good. (laughs) Uh, You know, there's a whole 53,583 fans packed into every seat. You know, it's just this busy, bustling, rowdy crowd, you know, wearing, you know, Crows Guernseys and Port Guernseys and they're heckling each other and they bustle in through the toll gates and they fill the seats ready for the greatest showdown ever. And then as people are cheering and chanting and heckling and holding their breath, the teams run on. But they come on with their arms around each other. You know, crows and power, you know, running on together. And they're holding hands and they kind of skip to the middle. And uh, when they get there, they they announce that actually uh, they made a deal while they're in the locker room and they thought it was pretty good that they all made it this far and they're off to the pub and they're not going to play. Can you imagine? How do you reckon the fans would react? (laughs) I I think think people, heads would roll, I think. It'd be pretty bad. People would feel pretty ripped off, wouldn't they? Wouldn't you feel ripped off? You'd paid, you'd waited all your life to finally see this grand final, and then they just lay their boots down, I suppose, and wander off the field. See, I think most Australians uh, like to think that, well, if there is a God, and if he really is coming back, that actually when he comes back to make a new heaven and new earth, it'd be great, actually, if he just kind of came on and, and made peace with his enemies and they just stood there on the oval holding hands and everyone went and got a beer and everything was happy and lovely, and okay. But the thing is, actually this wouldn't be a good thing, would it? A million times worse than Port and Crows not facing off, not having a showdown, not figuring out who actually truly deserves a title. Can you imagine if when God came back and he faced his enemies... They just laid it aside and nothing happened. See, there actually, there has to be a showdown. There has to be a clash because they're so diametrically opposed. There's such strong enmity between these, the, God's enemies and God himself. See, the clash is unavoidable. We need a decider. Who really is God. Who really is in the right? Who deserves to rule? 
or the message that God had spoken through the prophet Joel, uh, it was a continuous announcement we've seen the last few weeks that the day of the Lord is coming. God's coming back. Grand final day is coming. And here in chapter 3, God speaks through Joel to say, well, actually, it will be the showdown to end all showdowns. God will call out his enemies to come and challenge him. And he will reveal who really is truly in charge and in the right. Well, this ultimate decider we see here uh, portrayed in four parts. Now, you see them on your little outline under your Bible reading. Uh, first is decision by trial, second decision by battle, then a decision by harvest, and then a decision final. Now, you might be uh, visiting us today uh, and you just come in to check out church or someone dragged you along. Uh, you haven't accepted Jesus as your king. Um, you know, you might think maybe he's a good guy, whatever. Uh, you might actually feel a little comfortable, uncomfortable this morning. And because uh, what we're looking at here is actually God saying that when Jesus comes back, anyone who hasn't bowed the knee to him and given their lives to him as king is going to be head to head with God himself. I just want to encourage you, uh, while we're looking at that, hear this in light of God's grace that Gillian just read to us. God is calling you this morning to come and make peace with him so you don't have to be his enemy anymore. Well, decision by trial. Have a look at verse 1. In those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means Yahweh the Lord judges. There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel. I don't know about your uh, household, but sometimes I feel like our, our f- house is kind of a constant courtroom. You know, there's just, there's always some dispute to be solved. And so, you know, I'm always, I feel like I'm always adjudicating between, you know, two siblings or three siblings or, you know, everyone, you know, sort of at, at, at rivalry with each other. You know, what did they do? Okay, well, what did you do to them? You know, no, what did, what did you actually do to them? Um, you know, it's hard work being a judge, isn't it? And it's hard because, you know, unless you saw it for yourself and you heard it and you, you can't really piece together what happened. Uh, you're trying to, trying to make a judgment without all the facts. And often we just can't. We have to say, well, actually, I just don't know. I don't know who's in the wrong. I don't know who's telling the truth. I don't know what the reality is here. But for God, he doesn't have that problem. Because as God, he sees and hears and knows everything. And so there in verse 2, he says, I'll put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, what they did to my people, my special people who I loved and I saved and I rescued. I've seen what they did to them. What did they do? Verse 2, they scattered my people. They, they drove them out as exiles and as refugees. They've divided up my land they cast lots for my people. They traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls so they could get drunk. Verse 5, they took 
God's silver and gold and carried off his finest treasures to their own temples of their idols. They sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks. See, God focuses his judgment on the way that they have treated his special people, Israel. He focuses his sentence as he judges on what they have done to the people he's chosen and set aside and anointed as his own. See, when people oppose God's people, they're opposing God himself. And even more, when they're opposing God's people who he has chosen and appointed, they're opposing his king. In our growth groups this week, uh, we actually, as well as looking at Joel 3, we looked at Psalm 2. Uh, and that'll come up on the slide for us there. Uh, this psalm starts with the psalmist asking a question. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's break their chains and throw off their shackles. See, to rise up against the one that God has chosen, the one that God has set apart, has anointed, has crowned as king, is actually to rise up against God himself. It's a little bit like uh, if I get a babysitter and I appoint a babysitter to look after my kids uh, while Keely and I are out for the evening. Um, and if the kids ignore the babysitter that I've appointed and that I've given authority to, I actually take that as a personal offence, that they've actually... It's not just against the babysitter that they've offended. It's actually that they've uh, rebelled against my authority in appointing that babysitter and giving them authority over my kids. And that's exactly what is happening here, is in that psalm is being described, that God has not only chosen a people, as we see in Joel... He's actually appointed a king to represent him. And those who have traded away his people have taken aim at God's king and taken aim at God himself. So those people today who have decided, actually, you know, I don't, I don't think I need Jesus. I've got plenty going for me in my life. And why do I need Jesus as well? I'll just kind of, you know, I'll pass that one on. Traded Jesus away for something else. Well, actually, we're just like those who traded dice and gambled for his belongings. Anyone who chooses, well, actually, actually, I'm not interested in Jesus. I'd, I'd rather just chase after wealth and material things and just live my best life now. We're actually in the same boat as Judas who sold Jesus out for a few pieces of silver. See, Jesus said that what people do to his followers, they actually do to him. And what we do to Jesus, we do to God and we'll be judged for all of it. But there's a little reversal here as well. Uh, in an earlier chapter, chapter 2, God promised to repay his people. They'd been suffering. He promised to repay them for all of the hardship 
and the years that the locusts had eaten repay them with good. Here, it's God's enemies who think they're going to repay God. Have a look at verse 4. What have you against me? Are you repaying me for something I've done? I think there's lots of people in our world, uh, they might not put it like this, but I, I think they kind of have this sense that they're paying God back for something. You know, I, I won't submit to God. I'm not going to give him my allegiance. I'm, I'm not going to listen to him. And it's all because of something that happened in my life. You know, I've suffered in my life. So I don't know God anything. I've had, you know, I had these hopes and God didn't come good on them. So actually stuff God. I don't need him. Maybe even suffering at the hands of Christians who have done horrible, wicked things. I think, well, hang on. If I can suffer at the hand of Christians like that, I don't owe God anything. He owes me. But actually no one has anything legitimately that God needs to pay us back for. God does nothing wrong. Our suffering is the fact that this world is broken and that we suffer is because all of us sin. And even if God brings us suffering, he's righteous in doing that. It's a little bit like the trial of Jesus, isn't it? When God's anointed was put on trial and there were false accusations and lies, cases brought against him, but nothing real, nothing genuine. And so God says, well, if you are, verse 4, paying me back, I'll swiftly and speedily return on your heads what you have done. See, unlike any human judgment, God's judgment perfectly fits the crime. God can return on our heads exactly what we've done. What we've done to his people. What we've done ultimately to his son. Because all who despise Jesus all who reject Jesus, all who have cast away Jesus, well, they will be despised and rejected and cast away. First part is a decision by trial. The second part is a decision by battle. Have a look at verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Verse 10 there quotes a bunch of other scriptures, but they're reversed. In Isaiah and Micah, we have, um, we have they beat their weapons. Uh, they turn their weapons into tools. Here, it's a flip. They turn their tools into weapons. See, God's kind of doing a play on his own words here. For God's people, when the day of the Lord comes, when Jesus comes back, they won't need weapons ever again. They can turn their spears into pruning hooks. But for those who are not part of God's kingdom, for those who are enemies to God, 
Well, actually, they need to turn their pruning hooks back into spears. Because the only thing that will happen for them is not peace, but war. And God actually kind of says to them here, he kind of says, hey, bring it on. If you don't want me king, you want me off the throne, you want to run things your own way, well, come. Come get me. You're going to have to force me off. But he's not really worried. Uh, Again, in Psalm 2 on our slide, this is how God responds when all the kings and the peoples gather against him for battle. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? He scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. See, God says, what are you going to do? I've already crowned Jesus. What are you going to do? He's already defeated death. What are you going to do? There is no way you will ever get him off the throne. It's a decision by battle. And this battle doesn't last long at all. Uh, In fact, uh, you could hardly call it a battle because normally in a battle, both sides fight, right? Here, it's a bit one-sided. It's actually described here a bit more like, less like warriors coming to battle and more like grapes just hanging on a vine and getting hacked off. Have a look at verse 13. Decision by harvest. Swing the sickle, God says, for the harvest is ripe. Come. Trample the grapes, for the wine press is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Here again, God uses a little kind of word reversal to describe the flip side of this day. See, we're in Joel 2 in the last chapter. God uses the language of a harvest to speak about the blessing and the good that he's going to pour out on his people who have bowed the knee to his anointed king. Here he flips that harvest idea on his head and it's not a harvest of blessing, but actually the wicked become the harvest. Those who have rejected him become the thing that's being brought in, that's being literally crushed it's brutal, isn't it? It's, it's, it's really brutal imagery describing really horrific judgment. In the book of Revelation, God tells the angels to, to bring in the grapes and to throw them in the winepress. And it's actually Jesus who treads the winepress. See, when God's enemies face him, They don't stand a chance. It's literally a walkover. Actually, in Revelation, it goes even further. Revelation chapter 14, that as Jesus is treading out the winepress and pressing out the grapes, as he's he's pressing out his enemies, there's so much blood that it floods the earth as high as a horse's bridle for 300 kilometres in every direction. 
I mean, this is a graphic, horrific picture of God's judgment. Multitudes. It's like Jesus said that wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many take that way. This is sad and heavy, isn't it? It's confronting. Yet it's a reality that those who face have chosen. See, as unimaginably horrible as God's judgment will be, actually no one who is under God's judgment on that day would actually choose, if they could, to swap and become part of God's kingdom. Does that sound crazy, doesn't it? It's a little bit like uh, Crow supporters, really. Um, Gordon Bilney. Uh, anyone know Gordon Bilney? He was a Labor member for Kingston in the 80s and 90s. Um, and uh, he was a, a mad Crow supporter, um, even though Port is obviously the real South Australian team. Um, rather than change his morals and his... Pol- he would rather change, he said, his morals and his political party than change teams. This is what he said. If Port Adelaide were the last team on earth and they were playing against a scratch outfit made up of child molesters, axe murderers, failed into- entrepreneurs, I don't know how they got in there, and liberal politicians, I'd barrack for the liberals. Nor would people especially loathe Port Adelaide with a passion. Can I speak too badly of them? No, I can't. It's pretty brutal, isn't it? He says, I'd rather, I'd rather vote for axe murderers, child molesters and my political opposition than barrack for port. And, you know, actually, those who constantly, consistently, continually refuse Jesus, that would be just like good old Gordon on that day. There will be nothing that will make them want to change their mind because they don't love God. They don't love Jesus. They don't want to be part of his kingdom where everyone loves and bows to him because God's kingdom is all about God. It is all about Jesus. And they want no part in that. And so God is actually not only giving his enemies what they rightly deserve for the way they've treated him and his people and his son, he's also actually giving his enemies what they want. We want no part with you. We don't want to be attached or bow the knee to a God like you. And so God says, okay. It's a decision by harvest, but... Lastly, it's a decision that is final. Now, some showdowns end uh, with controversy and contention, don't they? Uh, Maybe there's a suspect call by the ref or a a dispute about the final score. Uh, Maybe an appeal to the review panel. But not this showdown. Have a look at verse 16. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. 
But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy and never again will foreigners invade her. So you can forget Hawkeye and video replays. We won't need them on that day. There'll be no contention as to who really is God and King. No contention as to who really wins that battle and deserves and has the right to reign and rule. Even the solar system will declare that Yahweh is God. On that day, finally, Jerusalem will be holy and secure. The lands of her enemies desolate. And God will live with his people. And it's interesting here, isn't it, that even though outside of the city of Zion, outside of the heavenly city of Jerusalem, outside the city, the blood flows. But inside the city, a fountain of life-giving, living water flows from the throne the throne of God and his anointed. And I've never been to Jerusalem, but I've seen enough photos and talked to enough people to know that it's it's not a very green place. You know, it doesn't rain all the time like it seems to here. Can you imagine in a dry and barren Palestine an endless fountain of water would just transform the place? The harvest is ripe, says God. A showdown is coming. And the conclusion is there's no contest. And so Psalm 2 tells us what to do in the meantime. Our final slide. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry and your way will lead you to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment, but blessed are all who take refuge in him.